Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.8, Livia Drusilla, Princeps Femina. Today's a biggie of an episode, the grand finale of our story of the indomitable Livia Drusilla. So all I'm going to do before we get into the guts of this show is to thank Tom, my newest patron. You're amazing, mate. Welcome aboard. You can join him and his amazingness and support the show at patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. We ended last week with the new Roman Emperor Tiberius vetoing calls to have his mother Livia named as Mother of the Country, and for him to have Son of Livia added to his title. As we've seen throughout Livia's story, her desire to ensure the best possible outcome for her son was a dominant theme of her entire time as Empress. When Augustus's heir started to drop like flies, this developed into her wanting to secure him as the next Emperor. While the sources probably go a little far in portraying her as some sort of ultimate tiger mum, there is no doubt in my mind that Tiberius would never have become emperor without his mother's help. It was quite possibly her greatest triumph. She was a woman very proud of her Claudian heritage, and now she had raised her august family to the highest office of all. Tiberius never really wanted to be emperor. He would have been perfectly happy serving his stepfather in the army and then retiring with his beloved wife Vipsania into a comfortable life of obscurity. But that had all been taken away from him when he had been forced to marry his stepsister Julia. He had rebelled further against this planned destiny when he had run away to Rhodes, and it was only after quite a bit of time in exile that he decided to return to Rome and take his place in history as an heir to the empire. But now that he had donned the purple, he wanted to be his own man. This is not to say that he wants to be an all-controlling, very hands-on sort of emperor. That wasn't his style at all, nor was it really that of Augustus. He was a delegator, happy to let the imperial bureaucracy that had built up under his stepfather keep doing their jobs, 
and wasn't at all averse to taking advice from people that he trusted. But, and this is a big but, he would not tolerate any challenge to his authority. Any threat to it would be dispatched quickly and ruthlessly, as we shall see. The problem is that his sole legitimising factor was his mother. She was his link to Augustus and, by extension, to Julius Caesar, the two great founders of the Roman Empire. And everyone was very fond of reminding him of that. Across the empire, statues of Tiberius and Livia were dedicated together. Their heads appeared together on coins. Prayers and sacrifices were made to them both in the same breath. Sometimes they were joined by Augustus as well, further emphasising the bridge that Livia provided between the two emperors. Tiberius's response to them being raised together in such a divine manner was to decry his own inclusion. He stated that he had no wish to be worshipped as a god, and expected his mother to say the same. He said, quote, Myself am satisfied with the more modest honours suitable for mortal men. It is unclear to what extent this was his own expressed view, and how much this was to prevent him being portrayed as a mummy's boy, but it does somewhat play into the image of Tiberius being someone who hated any suggestion of his authority being challenged. Put it this way, you're a middle-aged man living in a highly patriarchal society who has been made the ruler of quite possibly the most powerful empire in the history of the world. Would you like to be seen as being under the thumb of your elderly mother? Livia was 71 years old when she became a widow, already far beyond the normal life expectancy of a woman of her time. She'd been an emperor for four decades, and throughout all of that time she had used her talents and position effectively to exert influence over her husband, over issues that were important to her. She'd acted as a kind of gatekeeper to the emperor, and wished to maintain, or perhaps even extend, her power with her son on the throne. The sources are very fond of portraying the relationship between mother and son in this period as being one of antagonism. Here, for example, is Cassius Dio. Quote, In the time of Augustus, she had possessed the greatest influence, and she always declared that it was she who had made Tiberius emperor. Consequently, she was not satisfied to rule on equal terms with him, but wished to take precedence over him. Now, this goes a little too far, but there is no doubt that Livia's power only increased after her husband's death. Remember that Tiberius had not spent a huge amount of time in the corridors of power before donning the purple. He had spent much of it on campaign or in exile on Rhodes. He had always eschewed the grubby business of Roman power politics, while Livia had always excelled at it. She had strong relationships with all the main power brokers and knew how to get things done. She regularly met with senators and with her friends and clients, all with whom held important and influential positions. Cassius Dio says that she, quote, occupied a very exalted station, far above all women of former days, so that she could at any time receive the Senate and such of the people as wished to greet her in her house. And this fact was entered into the public records. The letters of Tiberius bore for a time her name also, and communications were addressed to both alike. Her influence extended far beyond the Eternal City. We know of correspondence between her and foreign rulers and client kings, and that letters and reports from the provinces often were addressed to her as well as Tiberius. This suggests that she was intimately involved in Roman foreign policy. The poet Ovid, who has no friend of the Julio-Claudians, wrote the following letter to his wife in Rome, advising her in how to approach Livia, 
as everyone knew it was her who should be approached rather than the Emperor. After comparing her beauty to Venus and the character and virtue to Jupiter and Juno, he advises her to do the following before presenting her petition. Quote, Why tremble or hesitate to approach her? There's no impious Procine or Medea who's been moved by your words. No murderous Danaid, not Agamemnon's cruel wife, no yelping Scylla terrorising Sicilian waters, no Circe born with the power to alter forms, no Medusa binding her knotted hair with snakes, but the first of women, in whom fortune shows herself as clear-sighted and falsely charged with being blind, than whom the earth holds nothing more glorious save Caesar from the sun's rising to its setting. Choose a well-considered time to ask, lest your boat set sail on an adverse tide. If she's doing something greater, put off your attempt and take care not to ruin my chances by hastiness. Again, I don't suggest you pick a time when she's idle. She barely has leisure for her personal needs. When the whole house is filled with revered senators, you too should go amongst the crush of business. Note how Ovid compares Livia to some ancient female monsters of myth by explicitly saying that she totally isn't. Classic. Tiberius wasn't entirely opposed to his mother having a role in his regime. But, as I've said, he hated that she was being portrayed as the power behind the throne. Suetonius talks of him being, quote, vexed at his mother Livia, alleging that she claimed an equal share in the rule. He shunned frequent meetings with her and long and confidential conversations to avoid the appearance of being guided by her advice. Though, in point of fact, he was warned every now and then to need and to follow it. He frequently had to reprimand his mother when he considered that she had overstepped, for example, preventing her from hosting a party for a group of senators and influential equestrians and their wives to a banquet in honour of Augustus. Traditionally, you see, only men could invite other men to parties, and Tiberius did not appreciate him being embarrassed in this way. He also told her off for ordering around soldiers and for taking charge in religious ceremonies where, by rights, she had no right to be. But, and this is important, Tiberius needed his mother. As much as he chafed at her attempts to raise herself to a higher position than he believed was her right, he needed some of her status and connections to rub off on him. This explains why, despite all these accounts and complaints, more portraits and likenesses appear of Livia from this period than any other. While he didn't like it, he needed to promote Livia as the kingmaker, and also as the Mater Familius. He had no intention of remarrying, and so he needed a woman to head the household and do all the business traditionally carried out by a wife. So for every time that he turned down an honour for her, such as an attempt by the Senate to rename October after her, he permitted others, such as her birthday being part of the official Roman calendar, a rare honour almost unique for a woman. He also allowed her the honour of the Salutatio, a Roman daily tradition dating back to the Republic, where one's clients would come to your house and petition you for aid and assistance. This was highly unusual for a woman, as she was not doing it on behalf of her husband or son, but for herself. These were officially sanctioned and published in the official record, showing that these were real government business. All of this shows then that Tiberius and Livia were walking a tightrope together, each needing each other for support, but it would not take much for either to fall. Tiberius' reign as emperor is often divided in two by historians. 
The first part is between his accession in 14 CE and runs through to about the mid-ish 20 CE with the elevation of his Praetorian prefect Sejanus, his retirement to the island of Capri and the death of Livia. And the second part obviously running from then to his death in 37 CE. The predominant historical narrative of Tiberius is of a cruel, jealous, repressive and neglectful emperor. But that image really comes from the second half of his reign. In the first half, things all ran rather smoothly, and much of the credit for that has to go to the relatively harmonious relationship between himself and his mother. A test of the relationship between mother and son came two years into his reign. Livia had a good friend named Plautia Ogulania. She had become a big name in Roman society after her son, a military hero and consul, married a rich patrician woman in Livia's circle. The two women were very close, so close indeed, that it seems that Plautia considered herself to be above the law. One of Livia's great qualities was knowing when to relent, never pushing the bounds of the law or respect too far. Plautia, it seemed, did not have that instinct. The episode is described by Tacitus. Remember, when he refers to Augusta, he's talking about Livia. A powerful senator named Lucius Calpurnius Piso, remember that name, stood up in the Senate and complained about, quote, the corruption of the courts, the bribery of judges, the cruel threats of accusations from hired orators. Soon afterwards, this same Piso gave an equal proof of a fearless sense of wrong by suing Agulania, whom Augusta's friendship had raised above the law. Neither did Ogulania obey the summons, for in defiance of Piso she went in her litter to the emperor's house, nor did Piso give way, though Augusta complained that she was insulted and her majesty slighted. Okay, so this is interesting. Here, a friend of Livia's, a woman no less, was defying a sitting Roman senator's legal right to call her to trial. Not only is she brazenly ignoring the law, but she has thrown herself under the protection of Livia. Piso is not budging, continuing with his summons, which leads Livia to portray this as an attack on her, claiming that her majesty has been slighted. The clear inference here is that Livia too believes herself to be above the law, raising herself to a position alongside that of her son. This was a tricky position for Tiberius. If he took Plautius' side, then he was implicitly agreeing that Livia and her friends were above the law, and making an enemy of an influential senator and his powerful friends. On the other hand, if he took Piso's side, then he would seriously embarrass his mother and thereby damage his own position, given that so much of his own authority derived from her. His reaction was actually fairly skilful. He elected to tactically ignore his mother's claims of majesty, and instead played for time. Tacitus continues, quote, Tiberius, to win popularity by so humouring his mother as to say that he would go to the praetor's court and support Ogulania, went forth from the palace, having ordered soldiers to follow him at a distance. He was seen, as the people thronged about him, to wear a calm face while he prolonged his time on the way with various conversations, till at last, when Peter's relatives tried in vain to restrain him, Augusta directed the money which was claimed to be handed to him. This ended the affair, and Piso, in consequence, was not dishonoured, and the emperor rose in reputation. This way, everyone won. Piso had his money and the honour of prosecuting a wrongdoer. Plautia had shown that she had powerful friends who would protect her no matter what. Livia had demonstrated her own power, 
and Tiberius had shown he was able to take his mother on and defend the rule of law. The next time a friend of Livia's needed help, things would not be so harmonious. If you cast your minds back to the last episode, you remember that Tiberius was made to adopt his nephew Germanicus as his son, as a condition of the naming of him as his heir. Germanicus was the son of Tiberius's brother Drusus, and Antonia, the daughter of Augustus's sister Octavia and Mark Antony. Germanicus was a popular and charismatic man. He was also fully integrated into both halves of the Julio-Claudian family, as he was not only the child of the son of Olivia and the daughter of Augustus's sister, but was married to Agrippina Major, a daughter of Julia, and therefore granddaughter of Augustus. Get all that? If not, then just take this away. He was super well-connected, better so, I would argue, than Tiberius. He had avenged Rome's honours against the German tribes of the Rhine after the disaster in the Teutoburg Forest, retrieving two of the three legionary eagles lost in Varus's slaughter. After returning to Rome to enormous popular acclaim, he was then sent to the east, where he was tasked with reorganising those provinces. Germanicus was everything that Tiberius wasn't. He was young, a proper Julio-Claudian, loved by all, and had achieved enormous military success. After the death of Augustus, his legions in Germania had declared their loyalty to him, not Tiberius, and wished to make him emperor. He had defused the situation, but it left a bitter taste in the mouths of Tiberius and Livia. What if next time Germanicus accepted the acclamation of his troops? What if he was to try and preempt his inheritance? This played into the paranoia of Tiberius, and, quite possibly, the protective mother instinct in Livia. There was also another argument that some have presented. Germanicus is portrayed in the sources as being a republican at heart, and so planned to restore to the Senate its traditional powers once he became emperor. Livia, who had seen firsthand what had happened when the Republic consumed itself in civil war, was an ardent believer in the imperial system, and saw only war and destruction in any attempt to restore the old order. Germanicus's dispatch to the East was thus possibly designed to get him out of Rome, but this was not a clever move. Sending to the East the family of Mark Antony, as well as Rome's greatest general, only further consolidated Germanicus's power and popularity, and he made no secret of his ambitions, especially when he illegally entered the province of Egypt without permission. It was also rumoured that Livia personally hated his wife Agrippina. She suspected that her younger rival wished to usurp her as the Mater Familius, and thought herself, as a direct descendant of Augustus, as being from a far more noble descent than his former wife. Tacitus, showing the even-handed approach towards women that is his trademark, remarks that Livia felt a, quote, stepmother's bitterness towards Agrippina, and Agrippina herself, too, being rather excitable, only her purity and love of her husband gave a right direction to her otherwise imperious disposition. Now, everything that's about to happen here is disputed. So, first, I'll tell you the facts. While Germanicus was in the east, Tiberius named as the new governor of Syria, the most important province in the region other than Egypt, a man named Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso. Name sound familiar? Yep, he was the brother of the senator that had taken on Livia's friend Plautia. This Piso, though, was married to another of Livia's friends, a woman named Munatia Plancina. Piso and Plancina made no secret of their disdain for Germanicus and Agrippina, 
and it is almost certain that Piso had been deliberately sent by Tiberius to be a thorn in the side of his heir. This explains why Piso consistently did not follow Germanicus's orders, and the two were constantly at loggerheads. In the autumn of 19 CE, while in the Syrian capital of Antioch, Germanicus fell seriously ill after dismissing Piso from his service. While on what would turn out to be his deathbed, he accused Piso and Plancina of poisoning him and placing curses about the palace. He also warned his wife not to cause trouble in Rome on account of his death, as he feared the wrath of Tiberius. He died on the 10th of October at the age of just 33. Yet another potential heir to the empire not named Tiberius, who had been cut down before he had reached his full potential. News of Germanicus's death spread like a shockwave around the empire, and his accusations of murder quickly reached Rome. It was widely known that Livia and Plancina were close, and that Tiberius was jealous of Germanicus. It did not take long for people to point the finger at the emperor and his mother. The situation only got worse from a PR point of view when Agrippina arrived back in Rome with her family and the body of her husband. A huge crowd greeted the widow, including the great and good of Rome. Except, very conspicuously, Livia and Tiberius. Nor indeed Germanicus's own mother, whom it seemed to have been banned from attending by their order. If anyone hadn't noticed, then Agrippina made sure they did. Where is the emperor? Where is Livia? Oh, is their grief greater than ours then? All along the way in every town and village, the people flooded to pay their respects to his ashes as we passed. The air was filled with cries and lamentations. Look at the faces of these people here. It's as if they've lost a son or a father of their own. Yet the man he called father and the woman who was his grandmother do not come out to greet us. I ask again, is their grief greater than ours? Put the ashes on the hearse and let us journey on to Rome. That scene, of course, is from my Claudius. Basically, if any of you remember the reaction of the British public to the royal family after the death of Princess Diana, well, multiply that by like a thousand and you get what we have here. Now, this is where we start to enter the world of suspicion and intrigue. Tacitus quotes some of these rumours. Quote, There was grief and indignation. There was too an outburst of complaint. Of course this was the meaning, they said, of banishing him to the ends of the earth, of giving Piso the province. This was the drift of Augusta's secret interviews with Plancina. The strength of popular feeling amongst both the elite and the mob forced Tiberius to bring both Piso and Plancina to trial. By all accounts, both of them were very clearly guilty of the crime, but neither Tiberius nor Livia were inclined to see them die for carrying out what were possibly their orders, in spirit, if not in writing. At the trial, Piso faced a great number of charges, but clearly expected Tiberius to use his powers as emperor to find him innocent. But it became clear that this was not going to happen. Whatever the rights or wrongs of the case, Tiberius feared what would happen if he went against the will of the Senate and people on this. Livia, however, was made of sterner stuff, and was completely unwilling to see her friend go down along with her husband. According to Tacitus, quote, Plancina was equally detested, but had stronger interest. Consequently, it was considered a question how far the emperor would be allowed to go against her. 
While Piso's hopes were in suspense, she offered to share his lot, whatever it might be, and in the worst event to be his companion in death. But as soon as she had secured her pardon through the secret intercessions of Augusta, she gradually withdrew from her husband and separated her defence from his. Piso, realising the futility of his situation, committed suicide in order that his crimes would not destroy the inheritance of his family. However, thanks to the intercession of Livia, Tiberius spared Plancina. According to Tacitus, everyone was outraged by this decision. Quote, So it was the duty of the grandmother, people said, to look her grandson's murderers in the face, to converse with her and rescue her from the Senate. What the laws secure on behalf of every citizen had to Germanicus alone been denied. She might as well now turn her poisonings and her devices, which had proved so successful, against Agrippina and her children, and thus sate this exemplary grandmother and uncle with the blood of a most unhappy house. Now it is tempting to put this down to Tasta's being his usual self here and smearing Livia, especially as he is almost our only narrative source for this. But there is more evidence that backs him up. A bronze tablet was discovered in the 1980s in Andalusia, which had, inscribed upon it, a report on the trial of Piso and Plancina. Therefore, unlike Tacitus' account, this is a contemporary source, and it acknowledges that it was only because of Livia's intervention that Plancina was saved. Remember again that Princeps refers to Tiberius, and Julia Augusta is Livia. Quote, The Senate believes that, as far as the case of Plancina was concerned, against whom numerous weighty charges have been lodged, since she admitted that she had placed all hope in the compassion of our princeps and of the Senate, and since our princeps has often and with marked attention requested of this order that the Senate, content with the punishment of Piso, spare his wife, and interceded for Plancina at his mother's request, and received very just reasons made to him by her as to why his mother wanted to obtain these concessions. The Senate deemed that both Julia Augusta, who was most well-deserving of the Commonwealth, not only because she gave birth to our princeps, but also because of her many and great favours to men of every rank, although she rightly and deservedly should have the greatest influence in what she requested from the Senate, she used it most sparingly, and the very great devotion of our princeps to his mother should be supported and indulged, and that it was the Senate's pleasure that the punishment of Plancina be remitted. Okay, This is one of these sources that makes nerds like me feel very excited. First of all, it proves beyond doubt that Livia was the reason for Plancina's acquittal. And, since it corroborates a significant bit of Tacitus' account, therefore leads us to believe that a lot of the rest of it must also be true. It cannot be ruled out that Livia had a hand in the assassination of her grandson Germanicus in order to protect the rule of her son and the continuance of the imperial system. Now, it could just have been Tiberius' decision, or Piso and Plancina taking the initiative, but I think it is very possible that Livia was involved. And if she was capable of killing Germanicus, maybe she did have a role in all those other murders of which she is accused. It really makes you think. That is the sexy murder take on the tablet. But the nerdy take is far more interesting to me. Shockingly. I'll re-quote some of the bits from there. The Senate owed her deference because of, quote, her many and great favours to men of every rank. She, quote, rightfully and deservedly should have the greatest influence in what she requested from the Senate. 
Livia used his influence, quote, most sparingly, and the very great devotion of our princess to his mother should be supported and indulged. Do you get now why this is such an inciting source? This is the most tangible evidence that we have of the strength of Livia's influence. It is an official document, not written by some ancient historian from decades in the future with his own axe to grind. It proves that the Senate took her very seriously as a political player, as this is their decree. It underlines her influence as a networker and patron. It states that her position was hers by right, and that she had exercised her power well through using it sparingly and always for the common good. But it goes further than that, as it suggests here that much of her power comes from being the mother of the emperor, that in doing so she had done a service to the empire, as great as its great statesmen and generals. This is almost a blueprint for female power, for how a woman could successfully and acceptably not only be able to exert significant influence, but do it by right and be celebrated for it. As Livia was the mother of the emperor, of moral good standing, having in the past done good by the Senate through doing the favours and interceding on their behalf, she had earned the right to earn a favour back from them. And in saving Plancina, this was no small favour. That they granted it to her, in spite of the mob outside baying for her blood, is an incredible indictment of Livia's personal power. Another thing to note is that despite her open antagonism towards her, Livia did not move against Agrippina here. The popularity of Germanicus did not lessen after his death, and much of his reflected glory passed on to his wife, who, as Livia had after the death of Augustus, played the role of virtuous widow perfectly. With the exception of Julia, Livia is rarely accused of moving against female members of the family, and it seems that here she did her best to protect her step-granddaughter. Agrippina's vocal opposition to Tiberius would eventually lead to her downfall, this would only occur after Livia's death. I said earlier in the episode that the character of Tiberius's reign changed in the 20s CE. Part of this has to do with the waning of the influence of Livia. She was, by now, a very old woman, and she seems to have lost that deftness of touch that had served her so well during her many years at the top. Her rashness in the Plancina-Piso affair is an example of this, and she also seems to have become overly vain in her later years, seeking to aggrandise her own legacy with perhaps unwise dedications and pronouncements. This goes hand in hand, though, with the rise to power of the head of Tiberius's bodyguard, his Praetorian prefect, Sejanus. He was powerful, manipulative, and had spies everywhere. He played on all of Tiberius's worst traits, his paranoia about challenges to his power, his inferiority complex, his difficult relationship with his mother. Like any prospective Grima Wormtongue, Sejanus sought to eliminate any mouth in the Emperor's ear other than his own. His first move was to begin an affair with Julia Lavilla, Germanicus's daughter and the wife of Tiberius's son and heir presumptive Drusus. He induced her to murder her husband, thereby throwing completely open the succession. Indeed, it is likely that Sejanus here was positioning himself at this point to be that new heir. With Drusus out of the way, Livia became his next target. He dug his fingers into any fissure that opened up between them, seeking to completely estrange mother from son. An example of this came in 22 CE, when Livia dedicated a new statue to the divine Augustus at the Theatre of Marcellus, a building in which she had taken a personal interest. Rather rashly, it has to be said, 
Livia had her name placed above that of her husband and son. To do that, placing the name of a woman above two emperors of Rome, struck Tiberius as being grossly disrespectful, and hit at his very potent mummy issues. He would not be seen as his mother's little boy. And of course, Sejanus was always there to remind him what it was that the people out there were really saying. Shortly after this spat, Livia fell rather seriously ill, and given the fact that at 79 she was unbelievably ancient for the time, it must have seemed very probable that she would die. According to Tacitus, quote, A serious illness of Julia Augusta made it necessary for the emperor to hasten his return to the capital. The harmony between mother and son being still genuine, or their hatred concealed. Livia did unexpectedly recover from her illness, and a relieved senate continued to shower her with honours, including the right to sit with the Vestal Virgins at public games and at the theatre, a further signal of Livia's popularity with the ruling classes, and perception as being of almost divine virtue, even while alive. But her rift with Tiberius, encouraged by Livia's vanity and abetted by Sejanus's slimy advice, continued to grow. Things came to a final head in 26 CE. Livia was seeking to gain advancement for one of her clients, but, as it wasn't strictly speaking legal, she needed Tiberius' approval. Naturally, she assumed that he would have no problem with it, but her son refused, unwilling to grant his mother such a favour. Suetonius states that, quote, he declared that he would only do it on condition that she would allow an entry be made in the official list that was forced upon him by his mother. Then Livia, in a rage, drew from a secret place and read some old letters written to her by Augustus with regard to the austerity and stubbornness of Tiberius's disposition. He, in turn, was put out that these had been preserved so long and were thrown at him in such a spiteful spirit. Livia here had finally pushed her son over the edge. By bringing up those old letters that had told the world exactly in what poor esteem the divine Augustus had held Tiberius in, Livia was pushing all of his buttons. But she had misjudged the situation. She'd only aimed to get him to do her bidding, as he had done so many times before, but this time she'd gone too far. Fed up with fighting with his mother, weary of executing the duties of an office that she had essentially forced upon him, and confident in the abilities of Sejanus, Tiberius took the decision to voluntarily retire for a second time. He packed his bags and headed to the island of Capri, which lies a few miles off the Neapolitan coast. He didn't renounce his office, but essentially delegated almost all of it to his Praetorian prefect. Suetonius blames Livia for this, saying that it was her overbearing nature that caused it. Tacitus mostly blames Sejanus as well, along with Tiberius' own personal demons, but can't resist a little dig at Livia for good measure. Quote, As to the motive for his withdrawal, though I have followed the majority of historians in referring it to the intrigues of Sejanus, yet I am often tempted to doubt whether it could not be with greater truth ascribed to the impulse of his own to find an inconspicuous home for the cruelty and lust which his acts proclaimed to the world. But then he goes on to say, quote, He was driven into exile by the imperious temper of his mother, whose partnership in his power he could not tolerate, while it was impossible to cut adrift one from whom he held that power in fee. For Augustus had hesitated whether to place Germanicus at the head of the Roman realm, but overborne by the entreaties of his wife, had introduced Germanicus into the family of Tiberius. 
and Tiberius into his own, a benefit which the old empress kept recalling and reclaiming. He really does love to bring up old wounds, does our friend Tacitus. Though I find it hard to believe that it was at the urgent entreaty of Livia that Germanicus was added to the imperial college. Where Tacitus and I are in agreement, though, is that the reasoning for Tiberius's exile cannot be ascribed to one trigger. He didn't run away to Capri just to get away from his mother. Even he wasn't that petty. It was a combination of all of the above that led to his second exile. We don't know much about what Livia got up to in the final three years of her life, but the sources are in agreement that she still managed to exert a moderating influence and made sure that everything didn't go to hell. Sejanus had managed to push the emperor away from Rome, but Livia was still there, and while she remained, his power would always be limited. Tacitus claims that while she was alive, quote, Deference to his mother was ingrained in Tiberius, nor did Sejanus venture to claim precedence over the authority of a parent. But, after her death, as though freed from the curb, they broke out unrestrained. I've mentioned Tiberius's demons a few times, as of some of the sources that I have quoted, and while I will not go into them in detail, let's just say that it seems that it was only when Livia was gone that Rome truly realised her role in keeping her son's regime in check. Massive political repression in Rome, and pretty awful, violent, murderous, sexual debauchery on Capri would follow in the wake of the release of her maternal constraints. In the Roman world, life expectancy was below 30 for most people, and it is estimated that only 6% of people reached the age of 60. So it was at the almost unfathomably ancient mark of 86 that Livia Drusilla finally died on the 28th of September, 29. Her death was such a significant event that it is marked by all of our ancient historians covering the period. Thaddeus Particulus describes her son as being distraught at the news. Quote, his sorrow at this time was crowned by the loss of his mother, a woman preeminent among women, and who in all things resembled the gods more than mankind. But then, Velius was always the emperor's greatest apologist, and isn't really credible. Most of the other sources claim that Tiberius made no attempt to come to his mother's deathbed, as he had three years before, attend her funeral, or grant her any posthumous honours. Suetonius writes that, quote, when shortly after she fell ill, he took no trouble to visit her. When she died, after a delay of several days, during which hope was held out of his coming, had at last been buried, because the condition of the corpse made it necessary, he forbade her deification, alleging that he was acting according to her own instructions. He further disregarded the provisions of her will, and within a short time caused the downfall of all of her friends and intimates even of those to whom she had, on her deathbed, entrusted the care of her funeral rites. Cassius Dio, after backing up Suetonius on all of that, adds further detail to Tiberius's utter disregard for his mother's legacy. After her death, the Senate ordered that an arch be built in her memory, an honour never before bestowed on a woman. But Tiberius managed to squash even this measure. Quote, The arch voted to her, however, was not built for the reason that Tiberius promised to construct it at his own expense. For, as he hesitated to annul the decree in so many words, he made it void in this way, by not allowing the work to be done at public expense, nor yet attending it to himself. Tiberius really stuck in the knife after his mother's death. By not giving his mother the honour of his presence at her funeral, neither as a son nor as an emperor, he necessarily made it a sad, poor occasion, 
hardly fitting for a woman who had sat at the top of Roman society for well over a century. By refusing to deify her, largely by falsely claiming that it had not been her wish, he tried to further deny her legacy. She had been named Augusta, linking her with her deified husband, and given all sorts of religious rites in advance of her death. When coupled with her growing sense of vanity, there is no doubt that she would have wished to have become a god upon her death. Tiberius denied her that, and by annulling her will and persecuting her friends, she denied her the ability to reward those who had stood by her for so very long. It was, to put it mildly, a dick move. Because her only remaining son refused to attend her funeral, the eulogy was instead read by her great-grandson, the future Roman Emperor Caligula. How to sum up a woman like Livia? We have spent the best part of three and a half hours in this mini-series on her, and yet I still can't help feeling that we have only just scratched the surface. We started off with a teenage girl from one of Rome's great families, married off to the rather disappointing friend of her father. After a few years spent on the run, on the wrong side of a civil war, she ditched him and married a powerful young man named Octavian. While she entrenched herself in Roman society, he defeated his last opponents to become Rome's first emperor. While he did his thing, she did her part to cement the new regime. Like so many great women in history, she recognised the importance of the politics of appearance. Her conservative dress and manners matched the political outlook of the new regime. To the public, she presented the ideal model of the virtuous Roman wife. And while behind the scenes she was a real influence over her husband, she worked very hard to promote the interests of her children, especially Tiberius. As I've said a few times, if it had not been for Attila's work, it was unlikely that Tiberius would ever have become Emperor of Rome. We may have had an Emperor Germanicus instead, and boy would Rome have preferred to have had him on the throne. While so many other men and women of the Julio-Claudian family fell by the wayside, either succumbing to illness or falling foul of the shifting politics of the time, Livia managed to always remain at the top, while still acting as a strong influence on those in power. Don't be suckered into thinking that just because she was the wife of the emperor that necessarily granted her stage and station to do all these things. Augustus had been married before and discarded that wife when she was no longer useful to him. The same had happened with powerful men of the past, such as Julius Caesar, and would happen again with future emperors like Caligula and Claudius. To remain at the top of Roman society for over half a century is no small achievement. To do so while giving no heir to the empire is pretty remarkable. To do it while being an active female participant in politics is quite frankly extraordinary. I've talked so much in this mini-series about the view of Livia since her death. Views have tended to range between a vision of her as an arch-conservative Iron Lady type character or as a cold, calculating murderess. This started with the ancient historians, Helicina started with her son ignoring her funeral, and continued for a long time, finding its best expression, of course, in I. Claudius. But what these visions of her lack, quite apart from historical rigour, is the notion of her as a trendsetter and trailblazer. Just as Augustus set the mark for what a good Roman emperor should be, Livia exemplified the ideal of a Roman materfamilias. While most of her successors failed to follow her great example, the best of them did. Every Roman emperor of the Julio-Claudian dynasty that followed was a direct descendant of hers, not Augustus. She provided the legitimacy of the line just as much as of her husband. 
her birthday will be celebrated publicly for at least another hundred years through scores of regime changes, and trinkets, jewels and clothes owned by her will be given out as gifts to honour brides of the Roman nobility for another four centuries. And although her son denied her the honour of being deified, she would eventually join her husband in the Roman pantheon of deities during the reign of her grandson, Claudius. Surprisingly, one of the best summaries of her personality comes from her greatest critic. In his obituary of Livia, Tacitus wrote, quote, In domestic virtue, she was of the old school, though her graciousness exceeded old-fashioned standards. An imperious mother, she was an accommodating wife and an excellent match for the subtleties of her husband and the insincerity of her son. Is it just me, or is there a tinge of admiration in that description? After her death, the reign of Tiberius went south fast. Tacitus states that, quote, There followed from now onward a sheer and grinding despotism. Sejanus, though, would not long last in power, as he too would become a victim of the Tiberian regime. And despite never leaving his island of Capri, the despotic rule of Tiberius would nearly wreck everything that Augustus and Livia had worked so hard to build. Witch hunts, mock trials, and rumours of the horrors and depravities going on at the palace of Capri made him so hated that when he did eventually die, the mob cried for his body to be flung into the river Tiber like a common criminal. Tiberius was Livia's greatest project. Putting him on the throne as Rome's second emperor was one of her great achievements, but it is also one of the worst aspects of her legacy. But the women who followed her as empress would mostly fail to live up to even this damaged legacy. If anything, their lack of finesse, skill and judgement proved to us all just what a remarkable woman the first empress of Rome truly was. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.